This episode of Arizona Spotlight is supported by the City of Bisbee. For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, understanding the intimate and meaningful images of women that make up the new photo collection, The Crone Body. A conversation about the connection between self-responsibility and inner peace with therapist Susan Miner. And the history behind Tucson's Ormsby Park and the far-reaching legacy of its namesake. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Tucson-based photographer Jade Beal is on a crusade for body acceptance and body liberation, often bringing into focus the most personal details of what it means to be a woman. Beal is no stranger to breaking Western cultural taboos, as demonstrated in her new collection of portraits, The Crone Body. It features a multitude of nude and semi-nude photographs of women in color and black and white. Joining her in this interview is one of her models, Carmeline, who just turned 80 years old. Beale begins by describing how the images in the crone body came to be. So this book was originally called Wise Bodies, Beautiful Elders. I was able to raise money to self-publish. And as I was putting it together, I came across this poem by Maya Luna called The Crone. And already I'd met a lot of resistance from folks that I I was using the word elder, a lot of resistance. A lot of folks feel that that's a word that is belittling or demeaning. I see it in the way that it is used in West Africa, where I've spent a lot of time, like how it's used in Mexico. Elder is like this revered, gorgeous thing. I realized I wanted to use the word crone. I wanted to just focus more on women's stories. I asked Maya Luna if I could use her poem, and I couldn't believe it. She said yes. And again, crone is seen as this awful thing, witch, ugly, gross, which I think goes directly hand in hand with the reason why I wanted to make this book, because we see aging as this apology rather than something to be revered, at least in our culture. So when I read Maya Luna's poem, it was very much using all the words that we steer clear from in our culture. We're like, oh no, I'm young. I'm young at heart. We, we praise youngness and there's youngness is beautiful, but that is one season of being human. It's a beautiful season, but it's only one, if you're so lucky. So Maya Luna's poem is pretty out there. It offends people. It gets people thinking. It gets people talking. (laughs) I love it. I weave it throughout the whole book with all these photos from all these different bodies. And everyone in the book is 60 years old or older. Then I want to really ask Carmeline about how you first heard about the project and how is it that you decided to take part? I learned about Jade about seven or eight years ago. At that time, and I don't remember how I saw the advertisement, she was looking for models for elder bodies. She wanted to take photos of elder bodies. My decision to contact her was based on something very personal. 
not on the crone or becoming a crone or wanting to be a crone, but on something very personal. We all have a story about ourselves, a personal story. My husband at that time had gotten Parkinson's disease and it shifted everything in my head and I begin to wonder what my story is. I wonder if my story is just a story I tell myself or the truth about me. So I was wanting to, as I watched him face the truth about himself and his life fall away, the life he thought he had. And approximately uh, what age was he at that point? He was young. He was 50-something. Okay. And I you was, were? I was in my mid-60s. So I wanted to find my true story, not the story I'd been telling myself and that I'd gone all my life with. And one of the things I told myself was that I was ugly, that my body was ugly. I decided that I needed to really look at my body, not through the eyes of my story, but through the eyes of reality, what it really is. I had been modeling for artists at the university here at the College of Fine Art. And when I saw Jade's ad, I knew that she would be looking at me through the eyes of an artist. She would be looking at me through the eyes of truth. She would not be looking at me through the eyes of my story. And all I had to do was take my clothes off. That's all I had to do. And I would learn who I was through my body, through the eye of her camera. And how would you describe the reflection that you saw? Oh, a work of art. And Mark, more than that, how I would describe is the relationship between Jade and me and the camera is what created that work of art because of the truth. There was no filter there. What is something that Jade did to put you at ease or to make you feel like you were in the right place? She called me sweetie. <laughs> I mean, it absolutely brings tears to my eyes. She kept, she would tell me to hold, hold that for a second, move over here. Okay, sweetie, let's do this. Okay, sweetie, let's do that. She, she spoke to me endearingly. That love in that moment liberated me all the more and, and assured me that I had made the right decision in being there. Jade, when we were corresponding about this interview, I referred to your guests as your subjects, and you called them your muses. Mm -hmm. In response to what Carmeline just said, what is important to you in building a rapport with your muses, and how do you go about letting them be themselves? Mm. The matter of the fact is Carmeline arrived to my door in a way that 99.9% .9 of folks do not arrive. <laughs> she so. was ready. She told me one of the first things she said was, Jade, wait until you see this body. And I was like, yeah, mama, I cannot wait. So get in here, honey. <laughs> I photographed now millions of photos. And that is the only time someone has said that. And I knew right then I was like, oh, Carmeline. We're going to do some healing. <laughs> and we have. The photos I took of her have been seen by millions and millions of people. I have received thousands of messages about Carmeline because it's an energy. It's an energy. And it's, it's this unapologetic here I am. And we're calling it beautiful. And this is my story. Jade, what has your experience been in hearing back from the loved ones and the people who matter in your muses' lives about this kind of photography? 
Ooh, that's that's a good question, Mark. That's complex. So the most um, feedback I get that is negative is from strangers, you know, that, you know, I don't want to see this. What is this? You know, and especially I get real vulnerable with my own stories and self-portraits and jiggling my fat around, dancing out in the desert half naked. You know, <laughs> I, I challenge people's stigma <laughs> a lot. And I know what I'm doing. I know that when I say, hey, I'm a fat chick dancing in the desert, that folks would be like, no, wait a minute. You're not allowed out of the box. This box says that only so-and-so gets to be beautiful and celebrated. And how dare you go outside of the box and say that you're happy. Isn't it crazy that stigma, the thing that keeps people down and that hurts them most deeply, is sometimes the thing that they want to defend the most? Like, don't take my stigma from me. Yes, Mark. Yes. Don't take my stigma from me. Okay. You just gave me goosebumps. (laughs) (laughs) So you get emails and you get people who are basically protesting your work. Yeah. What's your best strategy for dealing with that? Compassion. I get it. I get it. How dare I say that there's no scarcity of beauty? How dare I say that we all get to feel good in these bodies when so much, so many people suffer? I don't know. I've never met anyone who doesn't suffer. So I know that what they're saying is just they're projecting their own suffering. It's hard to find joy in these bodies. It's really hard. All of us have some sort of stigma, some more than others, obviously. But you can allow them their voice. Let it be. It's okay they feel that way. I'm not going to give it too much energy, though. When it's a partner with a client or a muse, it's more of it's not my business, right? But I also like to remind my muse that it's normal and it's okay. We don't have to meet them with anger. That there's something in there that that gets to be met. Maybe there's a conversation. Maybe they want to come to the shoot. The partner is usually male doesn't want to come, doesn't want anything to do with it, you know, and it's the women who are searching for this. Like Carmeline said, a new story. My photo shoots don't heal you of body shame and body insecurity, but it is part of a journey. And a lot of times my partner's like, no, I don't want anything to do with that. And Mark, I'd say about 90% of those people end up naked, taking photos, They didn't know. They don't know me. They don't know what I stand for. And it's okay. But once they come into the space, they're like, oh, this is actually fun. This feels good. Most people like to see their partner celebrated. It makes them feel in love. Carmeline, in closing for this interview, can you reflect on any of the things that Jade just said? Would you like to share your perspective or perhaps your story about the people in your life reacting to your choice? Before I modeled... I was having a massage, and it so happened that the man who was giving me the massage was also an artist. And he asked me, he said, have you ever modeled? And I said, what do you mean modeled? And he told me, he says, I'm an artist, and you would be really fun to draw. Boy, that really captured me, the way he put that. I got off the massage table, got dressed, went back to my hotel room, and told my husband who at the time had Parkinson's disease, and he said, oh, I used to do that when I was in college. It's a great way to make a living. And you are a happy exhibitionist. I think it's a great job for you. That's how it happened in my life. But the thing about what Jade just said that is, to me, so important is the way she responds to people who are critical. She responds with compassion which is exactly the way she responds to 
whoever is ashamed of their naked body, which is exactly the way we overcome when someone gives us the space to be who we are and what we need to be. The picture that is of me in this book, Jade gifted to me in a large size, and my current husband picked out a frame for that picture, which was close to $500. That's, that's what he thinks about his wife being naked in front of a camera. And where do you put it, Carmeline? And it's right in the entry hall to our house. So it's kind of like when you walk in the door. That's what I'm talking about. That is what I'm talking about. There's a naked woman that lives here. Thank you to Jade and Carmeline for sharing their insights. Photographer Jade Beale's new book is called The Crone Body. Information is available at jadebeal.com. Therapist Susan Miner is the author of Peace Inside, Beauty Outside. Miner has been a guest on this show before, each time using her knowledge and intuition about human nature to explore what it takes to attain some important goals, finding ways to connect with better mental health and emotional security while living in a world that often seems designed to tear us into a million disparate pieces. Susan Miner joins me next to discuss some basic principles of self-responsibility and how to turn the search for truth from an external quest into a series of internal discoveries. Self-responsibility is this. Awareness of ourselves, honesty with ourselves, not just what are we doing or saying, what are we thinking. If we are have an awareness of ourselves and we have an honesty of ourselves, once again with our thoughts, feelings, and actions, we can affect our partner or the people closest to us in a positive way. And at the same time, we can encourage them to be the same with us, thereby having a responsible and honest, I would say, home base or communication style. And then with that, then we go out into the world. Yeah. And if I could paraphrase what I think I just heard you say is that if you ask a person who is close to you in your life a question and they give you a superficial answer, it's much easier for you to give them a superficial response. And you might say on the surface you agree with them, but inside your head you're thinking, oh, there they go again. But if someone really speaks from the heart and gives you a genuine response to your question, that's much harder to deflect. It is. And also, if we give an honest answer, something that might be considered vulnerable or even a little embarrassing, we open up the communication so that person can be more of themselves as well. You know, there's a whole worry that, oh, if they knew the real me, they wouldn't like me. It's just the opposite. If people know the real you, they're going to like you, trust you, and love you more. Especially if you share with them something that's honest but might be a little vulnerable. Like, I'll give you an example. Well, we went to this party, and this family's house is so much bigger than ours. I felt a little envious, like maybe we're not doing enough in life. And then your partner can say, gosh, you know, my ego is a little involved, too. I was thinking we should buy a bigger house. I don't know if we could. I don't know. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. But what, what's happened there is the ego, we, we shared our ego, we shared our innermost thoughts. That could be a little embarrassing, but they're there anyway. So if we don't share that, then it's lurking somewhere. Like maybe it'll come out as a snap or maybe it'll come out as, well, if you didn't spend so much money, we'd have more or something like that. Susan, I have never personally excelled at inner peace. (laughs) I have an ongoing dialogue in my head, whether I want it or not, pretty much 24-7. In the advice that you give, you recommend that people find a way to focus on their inner peace on a daily basis. But there are people who are going to say to you, I don't have time for inner peace, you know, maybe on the weekend. And I wonder what you would say to people who say that they lack the time to focus on that aspect. So the first thing I would say is I empathize with that. The second thing I would say is how important is it? Inner peace to me is the most important thing. And once we have inner peace, everything else goes easier. So we make less mistakes. um, We have less arguments with people. We spin our wheels less in, in various aspects. So we actually save time. So the first thing to do, I would say for a person is to say, okay, how much do I want it? And the second thing would be, just like I would say for physical exercise, 10 minutes is a workout. 10 minutes is a meditation. 10 minutes is a peace practice. I mean, because we think, oh, I got to sit and meditate for an hour. Well, yeah, that's wonderful, but not everyone has the time. But 10 minutes isn't zero. The second thing I would say is pick one thing and stick to it for a while. Give it a real go. And the third thing is, and I think people might hate to hear it, how much time are you spending doing stuff that does not feed your inner peace that you could swap out? Facebook scrolling, Netflix scrolling. That was the first thing I thought of, Susan, is that in 10 minutes, that's five pages of Reddit. How do you feel after that? How do you feel after that as opposed to how you might feel after spending 10 minutes on honest self-care? One of the strategies I use, and I don't do it all the time, I wish I did, but when I'm feeling like I need a reset, I do not get on my computer or my phone first thing in the morning. I get out some books. So I have a book called Letting Go by David R. Hawkins, or I get out A Course in Miracles, or maybe Louise Hay, You Can Heal Your Life, you know, some oldies but goodies. And I'll read that first thing in the morning, so that's the first thing I consume. It makes me think of, like, if the first thing I consume in the morning was a green juice, that would be great. I don't do that. I have coffee. Like, let's be real. But, um, <laughs> I, you know, I get my yeah. books out. So yeah. that's one thing I do. Yeah. Well, to end our interview, I'd I'd like to remind people of two things that you and I have talked about that I think are kind of the flip side of the same coin. And one is the energetic consequences of our actions, which can sometimes be negative. But also, you said to me, words can heal. We can have negative energetic consequences to our actions and thoughts, but we also have the power to heal others if we just apply it. So words can heal, words can hurt as well. But how are we using the words to heal and uplift people around us? It reminds me, my husband went on a business trip to Vegas and he had to make a stop because there weren't any flights left. And he, you know, kind of, I'm sure he was going to get tired, but I 
I texted him, you know, I'm so proud of you because I am. He was, he put together a meeting that I know is just monumental. And he texted back, that energizes me. And I felt it. I knew it did. The words we use have a energetic consequence on the people around us. And let's just say it's the same for ourselves. There's energetic consequences for what we say to ourselves. We're going to have an energetic consequence to either one. So let's choose the positive one. And it's not always easy. Of course, like, you know, if you could see me, I'm smiling. Like, easier said than done sometimes, right? But if we have that focus, okay. If there's an energetic consequence to what I say to people, and if there's an energetic consequence to what I say to myself, then what am I going to choose? Our ultimate question that leads us back to self-responsibility. It's our responsibility to ask ourselves those questions and make the choices and realize we do have the choices with our thoughts, feelings, and our actions. We're right back to self-responsibility. Therapist Susan Miner is the author of Peace Inside, Beauty Outside. She lives and practices in Florida. You can find a link on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. In his capacity as the author of the Street Smarts column for the Arizona Daily Star, David Layton has become a living database of local history and how the everyday places in our lives got their names. Layton is now sometimes called upon to help officially name things, like new streets, including some after members of the Ronstadt family, and one for rodeo barrel racing champion Cheryl Servey. I invited David Layton back to the show to give us some background on his column next week in The Star about a neighborhood park in Tucson and the larger legacy of that park's namesake. Well, Ormsby Park is located in what many people call Barrio Santa Cruz. It's kind of on the southwest part of town near the Santa Cruz River and I-10 between Star Pass Boulevard and uh, Silver Lake Road. Uh, it's a small neighborhood. Uh, the park itself is just, I think, I don't know, four to six acres or something like that um, in an older neighborhood. So there are some uh, family members that still reside there today, close to 100 years after the first family members first settled in that uh, neighborhood. Well, that brings us to the central character of this story, William Wallace Ormsby. So tell me what you were able to find out about his origins and how it is that he came to be associated with Tucson. Well, William Wallace Ormsby was actually a twin, uh, born in 1835 in Ohio. His family were one of the early members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They were in Kirtland, Ohio, when the religion's first temple was built. They followed there by going to Nauvoo, Illinois, uh, where the second temple was built. And eventually they went on to uh, Utah, uh, where the Mormons settled before going to California. They may have done some searching for gold. They may not have. It's unknown. So when the Civil War started, or, or a few years after that, William and his twin brother Levi decided to join up uh, in Northern California. Now, once they were mustered in and uh, got their orders, they ended up traveling down to Tucson, Arizona, of all places. Uh, Tucson, Arizona at the time was kind of a small, sun-baked little village, you know, population about 300 at the time. And they spent a little less than a year in Tucson. Um, they didn't see any actual fighting against Confederate soldiers as the Confederate uh, soldiers had already left. 
by the time they arrived in Tucson, uh, about 1865. Uh, but they did spend some time here in Tucson, and they did uh, interact with some Apaches as well. Do you have any evidence about how the Ormsby's felt about Tucson? Uh, were there any letters home or anything that mentioned the old Pueblo? Uh, no letters that I could find are still in existence uh, about how they felt about Tucson. But I do know after they were mustered out of service back in San Francisco, William Ormsby headed back to Tucson. He arrived about 1872 and began mining outside of Tucson. He did actually get married in 1873 to a woman by the name of Refugia Buelna, who was believed to be from Sonora, Mexico. They went on to have at least three children, William Buelna Ormsby, uh, Carmen Ormsby, and Rosa Ormsby, and might have had a fourth child, Raphael, that did not live very long. So in your article, you mentioned that not only Tucson, but also another place here in southern Arizona was important to William Ormsby. That's correct. About the 1890s or maybe a little earlier, we see that William Ormsby, along with his young family, uh, relocated to Florence, Arizona, uh, which was a fairly small town at, at the time, definitely smaller than Tucson. You know, one by one, his children began to marry off, who also went on to have many, many children of their own. Uh, his son, for example, William Buelna Ormsby, had, I think, nine or ten children. Um, his daughter, Carmen, who also went by Carrie, uh, she had nine or ten children as well. And Rosa, I think, had about seven or eight children. Um, so they left a legacy of quite a population of Ormsby's uh, by other names around Tucson and also Florence, Arizona. So it was a while later that the Ormsby Park dedication occurred. How would you say that Ormsby's name might have been selected for that park? So the origins of the park name actually go back to 1933, when William Wallace's son, William Buena Ormsby, moved to the area, now known as Barrio Santa Cruz, and he started digging wells and installing windmills for the residents in the area. As a result of him moving there, um, his his son, Albert, and his wife, the Messia Ormsby, moved there as well, followed by numerous other Ormsby family members. Now, this small little neighborhood was heavily populated by the family. Fast forward to about 1971, and you've got the city of Tucson purchasing a little piece of land uh, for a park. And as the park is being built, uh, Demesia Ormsby sends a letter to Mayor Lou Murphy requesting that it be named after the family. Now, the Tucson City Council in the end decided to name it for William Wallace Ormsby, uh, the Civil War veteran and early Tucson settler, a um, hundred years after he first arrived. That was David Layton, the Street Smarts columnist for the Arizona Daily Star. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Christopher Conover. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host, Mark McLemore. Thank you to the City of Bisbee for their support of Arizona Spotlight.